From Brock Media, this is Never Told. I'm the producer, Nicole Davis. Each week, we'll be sharing an original story from a different writer, told in their own voice. This week, we're pleased to present Notes on a Breakup, written and performed by Zing Seng. Zing is a journalist, editor, writer and presenter. As a presenter, Zing has helmed Spotify's Shot and Chaser podcast, the Vice World News short-form video series Empires of Dirt, Vice's award-winning sex and dating podcast My First Time, and United Zingdom, which The Guardian named as one of the best podcasts of 2020. In 2023, her four-book series, Forgotten Women, which explores the untold stories of inspiring women who have been marginalised by history, was reissued as an anthology. For TV, Zing is currently developing an original scripted drama, alongside working on a new novel. I'll be back towards the end to chat with Zing about how this story was shaped and sharpened, but for now, here she is reading notes on a breakup. You write a script every time you get into a new relationship. And you write a script every time you get out of one. This one's mine. We meet at a house party, the kind where people fall asleep on the floor. That's where we end up, on the floor, underneath a duvet that isn't ours. He holds my hand as daylight starts to creep through the blinds. I've come to the party for a guy who spends most of the night ignoring me. So I find someone taller, blonder, whose name is What, are you mad? I'm not getting sued over a podcast. That would just be embarrassing. Anyway, welcome everyone to my first boyfriend. Not my first boy, obviously, and not the first person I've seen naked, but my first boy. And what a boy. The first boy I practiced saying I love you to in the crook of his back while he's asleep because I'm a coward. The first boy who remembers my birthday and knows my mother's first name. The first boy who makes me realise that P and V sex doesn't have to feel like somebody's punching your vagina in and out of work. I'm in love. I buy sexy lingerie. I turn up in a trench coat and thigh highs for him. He always looks slightly terrified when I do these things because... Honestly speaking, no straight man at that age actually wants a deranged, highly strong young woman meeting them outside a tube station in cheap stockings that won't stay up, frothing at the mouth because she wants them so much. They just want a girl who go to a cineworld with them and let them feel her up doing the trailers. Really, I'm doing this for me. I am breathless with excitement. I'm writing a script in my head about the kind of person I am and the kind of person he is and the relationship we're in. I am a woman in love, in love with the woman I am when I'm with him. Of course, it ends. Most relationships do. We became different people. Or I became a different person. Really, my mistake is bringing him to an open mic poetry night. My idea, obviously. Romantic, but not for him. I remember it. Him, six foot two in a yellow raincoat, being forced to sit through some interminable student poetry. I would have hated me too. We broke up that night. 
Again, my idea. Something about him in that yellow raincoat. I felt like I'd taken Paddington Bear to a sex dungeon. A few months later, we meet in a pub to clear the air, and things get clearer, perhaps a little too clearer. Has fallen for my friend. My friend who is, like me, Asian. So I tell him, magnanimously, I think, with a generosity of spirit that I definitely do not feel, that I would prefer it if they didn't get together, but that I know I've long since given up any kind of claim on what he did or who he saw. Does it matter that my friend's family is also from Hong Kong, like my mother? No, it doesn't. The same way it doesn't matter that it's an Asian friend who tells me that they've gotten together. I try to be a chill girl. I try to be aloof but broadly supportive. But when I see them together at a party, leaning against each other and laughing, something twists in my stomach that feels more like horror movie dread than jealousy. Although I'm sure there's a bit of that too. I leave that night feeling like I've just seen someone walk over my grave. Someone who looked, strangely, like me. A relationship is a story you write together, but a breakup is something you write alone. When you leave each other, you start writing a new story in your head. There can be winners or losers or none at all. You can be a victim or they can be a victim, or both of you can be victims of each other. What matters is you're scripting this alone, down from a writer's room of two. Did I mention he's white? At this point, it feels important to mention he's white. I'm guessing you assumed he was white. It never came up while we were together, but now it crystallizes in my head with fierce clarity as I'm walking home from that party. Can someone cue the get out theme? Uh, listen, I'll see if I can get someone to clear it, but I'll have to do it in post, okay? Okay, fine. Like, I remember going to his for dinner. His dad made a joke about wanting the British Empire back. He didn't laugh, but he didn't defend me either. And I was too young to name the hot sensation of shame that pulled in my stomach. His dad makes a joke about a pith helmet too, but surprise, surprise, the joke isn't very funny. I start building a script in my head about our breakup. When I replay the movie in my mind, there's a few key takeaways. I'm a bad dumper, for one. The type who breaks up with someone out of nowhere when you're both in bed, just because they failed to appreciate some bad poetry. And that the worst thing about the breakup, for me at least, was that he and my friend hid the fact they'd gone together. I had to find out from someone else. That was the movie that played. More of a hate watch, one would say, than a genuine classic. Eventually, I stopped replaying it quite so often. And then, of course, there are new releases. I file it away on the blockbuster shelf, you know, as a historical object, a period film. Sometimes I even think of him fondly. We were both young and he was kind. For instance, he never held the open mic night against me. Around.
pronounced Britain keeping people at arm's length is the new normal. Exercise once a day is allowed, and in this park in London, social distancing was strictly practiced. Years pass, and then sometime during the pandemic, there is an explosion of anger, as if facing the blade of a crisis sharpens perception. Asian women realized that there was something wrong with how we were being perceived by the world. I'm writing an article speaking to Asian women about being fetishized. I start talking to women about their relationships with men, with how they were treated. We find some things in common. Everyone wants to touch our hair, especially white women. This is meant to be a compliment, FYI. And everyone had a story about a white man. I'm saying white man in caps, if you can't tell. People are angry. They are newly horrified by their encounters, almost always with white men. One British Thai woman tells me about walking home from school with her father, only for a driver to lean out of a car and ask how much her dad paid for her. Many of them have never spoken about their experiences before. They'd repressed it. That feeling of someone walking over your grave, that hot sensation of shame, tied to a diving bell and sunk deep into the ocean. Gone. Goodbye. How else can one survive? We talk for hours like a late-night confessional. And then, I do what I'd been itching to do ever since the topic of exes was broached by my interviewees. I look up mine. You go through most of your life thinking of yourself as a unique person, each of your traits perfectly balanced to produce a rounded human being. What's jarring is suddenly realizing the world values you, not based on the things you value about yourself or the skills you work hard to acquire. Oh no, but the things you have no control over. The shape of your eyes, the place of your birth, the color of your skin. Anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying is married to an Asian woman. No, it isn't me, and it isn't my friend. It's some other, also, Asian woman. Now can we cue the Get Out theme? I'll do what I can. I can't promise anything. Close enough. I'm not a statistician, obviously, but the odds of meeting and marrying an Asian woman after dating Two other Asian women are not terribly high. I mean, they're high if you live in, I guess, Asia. Of course, there's every possibility that he might have dated a whole assortment of women between the three of us. Of people of all genders and skin colours like I did. Enough time has elapsed for him to sleep with a whole rainbow coalition of women. A real United Nations conference of women. Enough for all us Asians to fade into statistical noise. But I've never been good at maths. And now the movie of our breakup went back into the editing room. Maybe it's like owning a pet, you know? You grow up with golden retrievers, your whole family loves golden retrievers, and then you find it downright fucking impossible to own anything but golden retrievers. But there I go, calling myself a bitch. I was angry, angry and hurt. 
just like how I felt when I found out he was dating my friend. But another kind of hurt, one that felt personal, yes, but also political somehow. Suddenly, he's the white ex, that white guy. All too easy to see our relationship now unfolding along completely racial lines. Maybe he's always had a thing for Asian women. Maybe he just never told me the way he never spoke up to challenge his father at the dinner table. Maybe whenever I introduced him to any of my Asian friends, he was scoping them out, filing them away in the back of his head. Maybe I was just another Asian face in his mental box of exes. Maybe he sits on his bed and drinks whole glasses of white milk like Rose from Get Out. Do we have clearance to play the theme now? Listen, it's not looking good. Okay, no, never mind. Now I'm part of a different storyline, a movie that I haven't consented to be in. The wronged Asian woman and the deceptive white man. Another cliché, just of a different flavour. A bitter soup I swim in for days afterwards. All these years, I thought I was in conversation with him. But turns out I was in conversation with all these other Asian women. And our dance floor is crowded. The lights have come up. Nobody wants to make eye contact. Sorry, ladies. Everyone out. But hadn't I fallen in love with his hair? The way he freckled in the sun? Or did race have nothing to do with that? If he'd been born into a different body, would we still have found each other and liked the same things about each other, even if it was just for a moment in time? But if I didn't have black hair and skin that tans quick and a working understanding of how to use chopsticks and a very high tolerance for spicy food, would he have fallen in love with me? Or was there something deeper inside that drew him to me? Something beyond how I looked, some eternal immutable essence that persists beyond age, gender and skin colour? Or was it all tangled up with each other? in the way fetishes are, where some people see a divine object and others just see some dusty anthropological artefact. If he was expecting an obedient Asian woman, I would have come as a surprise. If he expected me to educate him about my culture, I must have missed the memo. When we visited my parents' hometown, I took him to a shopping mall. Does that count? I'll never know the answers to those questions. We lost touch years ago. And I want, I need, to believe that our relationship wasn't determined by race. In the same way, nobody wants their relationship to be determined by anything that isn't love. But maybe that's delusional. Maybe that's simply the kind of person I want to be. Maybe the narrative I imposed on this relationship isn't right. And all this time it's been straining, splitting at the seams, and I just wasn't smart enough to notice. Sometimes you are simply not in control of what others make of you. All you can control is what you make of them. Did I want him to be the white man? Did I want to retrospectively introduce a paranoid reading of our relationship, like a critic who goes back to snip, snip, snip away at an original review? This is what I've learned from decades of relationships. You think you're writing your story together, but sometimes you can be on a totally different page. You close the book and 
it wasn't the one you started out writing. You read a story back and the meaning has shifted dramatically. You are not the protagonist you thought you were, and the characters have shuffled around behind your back. I'm trying to think about how to express the anger I heard from so many Asian women, and I think it was that sense of being tricked that came out the loudest, that we'd been sold an image of ourselves, and to varying degrees either ignored or attempted to live up to it, but in any case had our lives defined by it, only to have that image used against us in the most intimate settings, like buying a ticket to a stand-up show, only to realise the joke is on you. Am I angry now? I don't think so. Maybe I come off angry, but then am I just conforming to the idea of the tempestuous dragon lady? If I'm stoic, am I conforming to the stereotype of the cold, emotionless Asian? If I sound depressed and weepy, am I doing a Miss Saigon pining for her lost love? It's exhausting, all the masks you find yourself confronted with. I think this is the animating force that compels us to throw ourselves again and again into love. We are searching for someone who can see us beyond the faces we present to the world, beyond the masks the world forces us to wear. We are searching to be known. And we fail again and again because true knowability is impossible. The movie can always be rewritten. The script can always be revised. Hi, Zing. Hi. Thank you so much for that story. It was, yeah, very brilliant, very pointed. I loved it. I'm going to start off by asking you the question that we're opening the debrief interview with for all of our writers. And that's the fact that each of our writers were given the same provocation, this idea of tell us something that you've never told anyone before. What was your initial response to that? You know, did this story immediately come to you? Pretty quickly, actually, because I'd written a lot about anti-Asian racism and... Asian women being fetishized. The article I talk about in the episode is actually one that I wrote for Refinery29, if anybody wants to check it out. But I'd never really talked openly or publicly about the relationship that I'd been in before that really kind of sprung to mind when I started interviewing all these women for the article. So that was kind of exciting to kind of figure out, you know, how do you actually write about an experience like that? But yeah, without making it sound like a poison pen letter. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about that, how you struck that tone of obviously wanting to convey the rage that you felt, but not just having it be a, a rant or something that felt indulgent. I think actually probably the first draft did feel like a rant because there was quite a lot of stuff I wanted to get off my chest. But then after a while, you know, in the redraft process, I started thinking about, you know, what is a narrative here? And I started to actually not so much be the protagonist of that story but actually to think about you know all those years ago what kind of person was I or what is the kind of person who'd be in a relationship like that where she kind of lies to herself for quite a while about the nature of that relationship and what it means um, and then that kind of really helped me incorporate a lot of distance into it to kind of figure out you know what is the narrative here how do you build the momentum towards the reveal that you know oh actually she's one in a string of Asian women. Yeah absolutely I think it really works well to kind of have it later and almost have the rug pulled under our feet just as it was for you. 
I want to talk about that line where it sort of crystallized with a fierce clarity. And I think you can have a crystallization, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily comfortable returning to that place or writing about it. Was that a process for you to be like, okay, now I'm ready to commit this to the page? I don't tend to write very personal stuff about myself in my own journalism. But it kind of felt like with this story, there's something you can say that's also, I think, artistically quite interesting, like that idea of you being a double of someone, you know, or someone being your doppelganger. That's really psychologically quite an interesting scene to mine. You know, it's it's explored in everything from horror films to, you know, thrillers. I think also that entire idea of you having a different perception of a certain relationship to the perception that someone else may have. I think that's also really interesting dramatically, you know, as something to explore in a story. So I think that was kind of what made me realise, you know, oh, this isn't just a terrible experience that me or other women might have had. There's something actually dramatically quite interesting to write about from that perspective. Yeah, totally. That image of the woman walking over the grave, the woman that looked just like you, gave me such shivers. And actually the horror movie element and the the language of cinema that you imbue this kind of piece with, I really loved, you know, the revising, the editing. Do you think we are kind of resigned to doing that forever with all relationships? Or do you think there comes a point where you can put it away and never return to it? I think you never get away from that fact, but I think you can become a bit more conscious of what you're doing. So for instance, you know, when you're younger and you think you're in love with the love of your life and you're doing all these quite quite deranged things to impress them, to make them like you more, we've all been there. And it's not even necessarily that we're doing it for them. We're doing it because it conforms to some idea of what we think romance should look like. And I think, you know, as a young woman, you're especially kind of prone to those kind of flights of fancy because you've been fed so much nonsense about what relationships should look like, especially if you're in a relationship with a cis straight man. So I kind of think there's no really getting away from that script. But what you can do is be a bit more conscious of it as time goes on and you start to challenge it in different subtle ways. You know, you don't put up with relationships and you start to have a bit more clarity about, you know, when a relationship is something you're literally building just in your head that bears no resemblance to the actual reality of it and you find yourself better able to walk away from things that aren't working out. Yeah exactly it's like that thing of discovering boundaries and it's only then that you realise how like non-boundaried you are in certain relationships. I want to return to the rage that pulses throughout this essay and as you say it doesn't feel like you feel that anymore but I'm wondering how it manifested when you first started to feel it and whether it's taken a different form. It's funny because I think the anger was always there. I think a little bit of me always knew something was really messed up with the fact that he'd gone out with my then friend. But I think it was only over recent years that I allowed myself to feel the full force of it and to understand what it meant in the full context of Asian women being treated in certain ways by society and in definitely in relationships. So I think it was kind of always there bubbling under, but to varying degrees I wouldn't let myself or I couldn't let myself feel the full force of that anger and it was only really speaking to all these different women about their own experiences of dating and relationships that I kind of realized oh actually it wasn't just one experience that I had that made me feel terrible about myself it was something that actually mirrored what quite a lot of people go through. Was it liberating or useful to let yourself feel the full force of that anger? I think it was actually politically useful in that it made me realise, you know, there's that old phrase, the personal is political. But actually, I 
understood that phrase for the first time when I started looking back on, you know, like my dating history after speaking to all these different women and realising just how common all of our experiences were. And what was the experience of reading it aloud like? It was actually fun. It was... I think the thing that I found challenging about it was inserting enough distance between myself and the story that I was telling, you know, so it didn't feel like, you know, you're wrenching yourself open in some way. And actually talking it aloud inserted even more distance into it because all of a sudden I'm not myself. I'm playing sort of a character, really. I'm like heightening it for the listener. Yeah, there was a real archness or wryness to the delivery, which I think helped with that. Because I think it is, you know, in some ways a fundamentally really goofy, you know, experience to go through. I mean, it's crap. And I think a lot of women do go through it. But it is, there is something quite tragicomic about the whole thing. And I think especially when it's, you know, your first relationship, you know, the first person you've been in like a long term relationship with. I think there is something that's quite funny about it, you know, especially when you start out thinking that, you know, this is the love of my life. Yeah. And do you think it's about control as well? Like if you can see something through the lens of humour or with an eye roll, it's like you've reclaimed more agency over that narrative. I do actually think if you're writing about something and it's a really vulnerable or emotional or more like confessional form in a way that is still kind of exercising control over it, because I think the act of writing and performing something is a kind of way of control. You're choosing to be vulnerable, you're choosing to be emotional. I think for me personally, my personality is such that I'm much better at emphasizing control, like exerting control through humor rather than, you know, being super emotional and confessional. Yeah, no, it's a really valid point. You mentioned that your journalism and obviously people probably know you as a journalist, a podcaster, a presenter. I'm wondering if writing something that tilted towards prose slightly, you know, whether it required anything different from you, whether you changed your approach to writing. I think with journalism, there's always a sense that an article has to create an argument. And the best journalism, you're not even aware you're reading an argument. You just leave the article realising you've changed your mind or, you know, having learnt something new without even knowing it. Whereas with something like this that's more creative and freeform, it's almost like it's not really about making an argument or arguing for anything. Although I'm sure, you know, people can take that, take something away from that if they want. Um, It's more about trying to figure out what the narrative is and what the story is you're trying to tell and whether that has a rhythm and a conclusion and is you know told in an authentic way yeah I think as well it's about conveying a feeling right and I think the one that you convey so well and so strongly throughout this is the growing sense of ick you know it really starts off with that rom-com vibe and then as you say you push us into the realm of horror movies yeah and it is you know I I love rom-coms and I also love horror so it's a kind of fun balancing act because yeah you know like I say it's the beginning of this relationship is so goofy I mean you know you're a young woman you're doing all these deranged things like trying to be sexy for someone who who doesn't really even care about that kind of stuff it is very rom-commy and then you know obviously things then get a bit more complicated and a bit more kind of confusing so I think that yeah that balance between rom-com humor and horror is something that I really liked doing about this piece Are you teasing a horror-tinged rom-com? I would love to write a horror-tinged rom-com, actually. (laughs) That would be amazing. I'd love to see that from you. I mean, on that note, are there stories that you're thinking about writing at the moment that you feel like you're gearing up to or towards? I mean, I really love exploring sex and dating and relationships, but I also like things that take on a political twist, I guess. It's that kind of interconnection that I'm really interested in exploring. I'm working on a novel that hopefully does that. 
Well, I can't wait to read it when it does come out. Zing, thank you so much for this story. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Never Told was produced by me, Nicole Davis. Our executive producer is Sarah Brocklehurst. Our production assistant and assistant story editor is Amy Yeo. Our sound designer and mixer is Tom Wally. Our artwork is designed by Bette Norris. That's our show for today, and we'll be returning next week with a final story in this anthology from Caleb Azuma Nelson. Listen to Never Told on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.